Welcome to Pandemic Ethics, a podcast dedicated to the defining ethical challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, Joshua Price. My guest today is Anahi Wiedenbrug of Oxford University. Our topic is sovereign debt and moral responsibility. As the pandemic threatens to generate and exacerbate debt crises around the world, what moral principles ought to govern the repayment of debt, and what responsibilities do different agents have to ensure that the servicing of that debt doesn't perpetuate injustice and create further economic and humanitarian crises? Please join us. Welcome to Pandemic Ethics. I'm your host, Joshua Price, professor of philosophy at Minnesota State University, Mankato, and the author of Just Work for All, the American Dream in the 21st Century, which is now available from Rutledge. In today's episode, we discuss debt and responsibility. Sovereign debt has risen dramatically in the past year as nations around the world try to keep their citizens safe during the pandemic and protect their economies from total collapse. What moral responsibilities ought to govern the issuance and repayment of such debt? How are global injustices reflected and reproduced in sovereign debt crisis, and when, if ever, does the obligation to repay sovereign debt no longer hold for citizens and their representatives? To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to welcome Anahi Wiedenbrug, Leverholm Early Career Fellow at the Blatnick School of Government at Oxford University. Anahi, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. How has the pandemic impacted sovereign debt, that is, uh, debt held by central governments around the world? And and what sort of variance do we see from country to country? I think that a very good starting point to answer that question is to, to take a step back and look at where we were coming from. So before the pandemic erupted, we saw uh, we had what became known as the fourth wave of debt. We see throughout history that there's several waves of debt, as the name already implies, fourth wave (laughs) indicates that there were three prior to that. And what is very interesting about this is that after each one of these global debt accumulation waves, there was a financial crisis. So we have, you know, Uh, global debt wave in the 70s and 80s, then one in the 90s, and then lastly in the 2000s, which obviously ended with the global financial crisis and the crisis in the sovereign debt crisis in other countries that were triggered by it. So it was in, in a moment of this fourth wave of global debt accumulation that the pandemic hit. And, and that's very important because it sets the stage of what we're seeing today. Well, obviously, once the pandemic um, hit the economies around the world, uh, we saw two things happening in parallel. First, uh, fiscal expenditure rose, and secondly, revenues decreased. And this, of course, really resulted in debt-to-GDP ratios reaching new highs. And I think what is most interesting about this are actually two things. First, that it was actually in advanced economies because of their fiscal capacity that we saw the kind of largest fiscal stimulus packages, which resulted in, yeah, well, just kind of more fiscal spending. If we think about, you know, advanced economy spending more or less 15 to 20 percent uh, in emerging and developing economies, that is much lower. And we see around three to six percent of GDP spending. So I think that's one of the big differences. And it's very interesting because despite of this, the debt vulnerabilities actually are 
largest in developing and emerging economies. And what this indicates is obviously something that has, you know, been known for a very long time, that debt to GDP ratios and debt vulnerabilities and debt sustainability analysis are don't always come hand in hand. So debt that might be sustainable for some countries isn't for others. It's against that backdrop then then that we need to kind of understand the debt vulnerabilities of emerging and developing countries currently. This is important to understand both morally and politically. The countries that find themselves most in debt or who have the greatest trouble servicing their debt are very often not the countries that have actually borrowed the most or who regularly run budget deficits. Uh, That is, debt is not always or even usually the result of irresponsible or profligate spending. Is this becoming more widely recognized? This is something that really did call the attention of the international community. We've seen two major initiatives from the G20 that were that, that were implemented throughout 2020. One of them is the Debt Service Suspension initi- Initiative, which, as the name implies, suspends debt. And here I need to be more precise. It, it suspends bilateral public debt uh, from official creditors uh, of G20 countries for, for the duration of a year. And maybe now a year and a half, probably also two. And then the second one, which is the common framework, which goes beyond that because it actually also entails debt treatment, so debt restructuring. Uh, However, these are only initiatives that apply to least income countries. So it leaves other developing countries and emerging economies outside of the kind of realm of eligibility. So we're probably going to see a lot of debt crisis in in the years to come. Can you explain how countries can find themselves in a sovereign debt crisis, even though they have, in fact, borrowed much less than wealthier countries like the U.S.? Yes. So I think we can kind of answer that question with the example of the pandemic. So what we've seen, for instance, in March and April of 2020 were incredible capital outflows from developing and emerging economies. So we see more or less five times more capital outflows than during the global financial crisis. So that's a staggering number. Uh, One really needs to wrap one's head around that. And what happens when capital leaves uh, developing and emerging countries is, of course, that it creates an immense pressure on public budgets. And um, this then puts developing and emerging countries in a situation where their revenues are much lower um, and in a moment in the pandemic, of course, where actually fiscal spending is required. Um, so so that really does uh, create a lot of, of pressure. Then I think that I would like to mention one specific aspect of this as well, uh, which are credit ratings. So um, credit ratings were a major factor that also impacted uh, the, the situation of developing and emerging countries during the pandemic in, I would say, two ways. First, directly, because credit rating downgrades uh, make it more di- more, more expensive uh, for, for countries to accrue debt. Uh, but then also because the fear of possible credit downgrades impacts countries' behaviors. So for instance, talking about the debt service suspension initiative that I mentioned previously, credit rating um, downgrades or the fear thereof actually inhibited some countries from applying to this initiative, which basically would have benefited them in the sense that they would have been granted relief of debt payment for a year or a year and a half, two years, depending on how long the the initiative is extended. 
So global credit markets and credit rating agencies provide a disincentive to taking advantage of debt service suspension initiatives, particularly during the pandemic when they would be most helpful. So I think the fear of, of countries, if they applied to the debt service suspension initiative, which aims at providing relief to countries in the midst of the pandemic, was that it would actually backfire because their cost of lending would have increased the their cost of new lending would have increased if they if they were downgraded if their credit rating would be uh, lowered so in a way it's it's um it would defeat the purpose of the initiative Let's talk about debt and responsibility in the context of an unjust global order. In a recent paper in the American Political Science Review, uh, a paper that's available at the Pandemic Ethics website, pandemic-ethics.com, you defend what you call an integrated model of responsibility for financial crises. What does this understanding of responsibility entail? The integrated responsibility model starts uh, from the... I think the the most uh, promising aspect of the agential and the structural model. So what the agential model does, it it looks at the constitutive link between action and outcome and attributes responsibility on the basis of a normative ground that can be identified in such a backward-looking way. And it then attributes responsibility that is isolating in the sense that once it attributes responsibility to a particular agent or a kind of particular group of agents, the rest are in a way left off the hook. The structural model, by contrast, thinks about structural injustices, so injustices that are complex and characterize our contemporary global order, as were produced through what they call structural processes. So structural processes are processes in which different actors uh, do things that might be perfectly morally acceptable, at least for the vast majority of people, uh, and which together reproduce outcomes that we would consider to be unjust. And because of this understanding of how it come, how injustices come about, they attribute responsibility in a forward-looking and shared way. So what that means is that they don't look back and think about what different agents did, but they attribute responsibility in order for agents to mobilize politically to change the unjust status quo. And they attribute shared responsibility because they don't want to let others off the hook only because they've attributed responsibility to some. So what is your integrated model then? What does a theory of responsibility need to do to address or recognize both agential and structural aspects of responsibility? So what I do then is I introduce three different desiderata. So what I think are uh, important things that our responsibility theory needs to fulfill in order to be particularly forceful. Um, I say that uh, responsibility theory needs to be needs to provide a right diagnosis of how injustices are reproduced. It needs to be able to offer a good prescription of what agents are responsible and on what grounds. And it needs to be actionable, which means that something needs to follow from that responsibility attribution. And of course, these desiderata are interrelated in a sense that if you do not fulfill the first two, it's more difficult for you to be able to say something about what needs to follow from responsibility attribution. So then what I say is that my integrated model, um, which consists of three heuristic categories, fulfills these three desiderata better, uh, the, which is it's not very surprising given that I'm the author. Uh, the first is structural processes. And I think that 
it's it's here we can kind of dive back into the area of financial crisis and sovereign debt crisis in particular. It's the type of phenomenon, financial crisis, that scholars who defend the structural model think of when they developed their their theory and their model of responsibility. Financial crises are, I think, the prototypical example of cases where a lot of different actors do things in a very disaggregate manner, which together then results in kind of a process that results in very undesirable social and obviously also political economic consequences. But, of course, those sovereign debt crises come about as a result of countless actions by independent agents. Some agents have far more impact than others and also have more power or capability to do things differently. What scholars who defend the structural model lack is a way of distinguishing between different contributions to that structural process. So that's why I introduced kind of what I call the structural agential level. So we have on the one hand structural processes, then we have the structural agential level. And this structural agential level is characterized by the fact that it does recognize that agents contribute to the very structural process, but not all of the contributions are comparable because some of them might not be morally innocent as advocates of the structural model propose. And also there's the element of power. Some actors have more power than others. So that's the second level. And then to kind of uh, finalize the integrated responsibility model, I introduce a third heuristic category, um, which can help us understand a third channel through which structural injustices are reproduced. And uh, that's what I call the structural systemic level. And that's basically, to put it very boldly and oversimplifying it a little bit, it's a recognition that these structural processes do not happen in an institutional vacuum, but that actually the institutional social order does impact the extent to which, for instance, financial crises are more or less likely to occur. And if you look at you know, the development of uh, financial capitalism since the breakdown of Bretton Woods, you can definitely recognize that the institutional social order, however defined, that we live under from the breakdown of Bretton, Bretton Woods onwards, has definitely been much more prone to financial turmoils than than prior to that. Can you give a concrete example or two to demonstrate the value of your integrated model? Cases where the relevance of the structural model seems clear, but where it is important not to neglect differences between individual agents? I think a good example might be the Latin American debt crisis in the 80s. So the Latin American debt crisis in the 80s resulted in what has been called the lost decade. It's um, a sovereign debt crisis that definitely falls into the category of crises that uh, reproduce the unjust social and global order. And I think that it's a good example because it, in a way, emphasizes the how the different heuristic categories of the integrated model can be useful in order to truly understand the complete picture of responsibility that one can paint with the integrated model that we might not be able to completely comprehend with any of the other models available. In the late 70s and in the early 80s, what happened is that uh, Paul Volcker, who was the um, chairman of the Fed at the time, increased interest rates uh, very, very kind of rapidly and by a lot. And what this triggered is something that is in a way comparable, um, although not in in the amounts because the kind of 
what we saw in April, in March and April in the pandemic is much larger. But nonetheless, it's compar- what it triggers is comparable to what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, which were basically very large capital outflows. So what this then did is that Latin American countries had less dollars to service debt they had accrued in that foreign currency. Now, one might think that the sovereign debt crisis that then erupted in Latin America really falls into the category of being a structural, being caused by a structural process proper. Because at the end of the day, what capital outflows are, are individual decisions of different investors who pull their money away from emerging markets in order to save in the United States just because the interest rates are higher and they're going to get a larger profit for it. So if all there was to you know, the explanation of why the sovereign debt crisis erupted and how structural injustices were reproduced was that it happened through the structural process, then the structural model would be enough. But what I argue is that there's at least two things that fall outside of the this explanation of the sovereign debt crisis in Latin America. First, there is, um, to put it kind of very boldly, the decision of Paul Volcker. So Paul Volcker's decision isn't comparable, I argue, uh, for, with that of all of the individual investors who decided to just, you know, drop Latin American bonds and uh, save in U.S. dollars, for instance, um, because he was in a different position. He was in a position that gave him more knowledge about the implications of the choice of raising interest rates. Of course, I'm not making any argument here, and I think this is a hopefully kind of a paper I wish I will write at a future point in time. I'm not making any argument here that uh, the central bank governor of a hegemonic country like the United States needs to take into account the policy effects of his or her choices on kind of developing and emerging economies. But what I'm saying is that if we're thinking about the sovereign debt crisis that erupted and the consequences it had, the decision of Paul Volcker is meaningful in a different way than the individual decisions by investors. So that's why I introduced the structural agential level and that heuristic category to capture those sorts of contributions to the structural process. Just to give the listeners a, a bit of historical context here, the avowed aim of Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time, when he raised interest rates dramatically was to stomp out inflation and the negative impact of that inflation on the U.S. economy. The target rate actually was uh, something like 20%. And just by comparison, uh, the interest rates have rarely been above 4%, uh, the targeted rates, in the last two decades, and they're basically zero now. There were all sorts of distributive and political impacts from this decision domestically, but as as Anahi notes, uh, it also led to rapid capital flows out of countries around the world with predictably devastating consequences for Argentina and a number of Latin American countries. Perfect. So just to kind of finish the comparison of what the integrated model that vis-a-vis the other models that are out there at the moment what I think the integrated model with its third heuristic category, the structural systemic level, also does, it is point out very clearly that this only this type of event only occurred because we live in a world of few capital controls. And this is something that obviously didn't just happen 
by chance, but it was a policy, policy choice that was more or less free for different countries since uh, 1971 uh, when uh, Nixon abolished the bread and wood system. So how is an unjust global order reproduced in sovereign debt crises and how is this relevant to a country's responsibility to service their debt? So I think what the integrated responsibility model does is it broadens the view of the normatively relevant questions when one thinks about sovereign debt crisis. So when I uh, tell anyone that I work on sovereign debt uh, from a normative perspective, the immediate thing that most people think of is, so you work on the question of when the state uh, no longer needs to service its debt or whenever, when the citizens of that state no longer need to service their debt. And obviously, that's a very pertinent question, and I've written on that question too. But I think that the integrated responsibility model is very valuable because it brings to light and it kind of emphasizes other normative questions that become relevant in the context of sovereign debt and sovereign debt crisis. In a way, it forces you to look beyond the usual suspects when we think about responsibility for sovereign debt crisis. And I think that's a very valuable contribution of the integrated responsibility model. With this model in mind, what can we say about responsibility for debt in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, What are the relevant issues or questions? I think that what makes the pandemic uh, so interesting, or one of the things that make the pandemic so interesting, is that it truly is, as orthodox economists would call it, a black swan event. It is an exogenous shock that was not caused by what uh, the international financial institutions would call uh, weak macro fundamentals. So in a way, it challenges um from kind of the bottom up, this idea that debt crisis or debt vulnerabilities only emerge because of the recklessness of the debtor country. So I think that's that's a first a, a first comment I would like to make, and I think that we really need to to seize the political opportunity of bringing this point home and really stressing it because it is something that is has historically often been forgotten after you know we uh, managed to overcome a particular crisis then i think that the integrated responsibility model also allows you to identify different aspects of the institutional order that actually made the current crisis worse or that need to be altered in order to try to avoid uh, debt vulnerabilities really kind of becoming full-blown sovereign debt crisis in the months and years to come. So one of them I've already mentioned. So I think that, for instance, credit rating agencies truly are, and their methodologies in particular, their business model and their, in a way, conflict of interest, the conflict of interest that characterizes credit rating agencies, those are all things that really uh, need to be tackled if we want to avoid debt vulnerabilities exacerbated by the pandemic turning into full-blown sovereign debt crisis and if we want to avoid this happening in the future too. I think the second thing that is really interesting um, and that the integrated responsibility model also in, in an indirect way invites us to think about is everything that has to do with 
restructuring and how to think about the responsibility of the debtor in restructuring and the kind of policy frameworks that may facilitate better restructuring. In terms of the, the latter, I can say a little bit more about the responsibility of the debtor in restructuring maybe in a bit, but in terms of the policy frameworks, I think that as I said, the initiatives that have been um, agreed upon at, at the multilateral level do not take into account uh, or do not offer any means to deal with debt vulnerabilities with private creditors. So that's a massive, massive lacuna and something that uh, might create big uh, problems in, in the months and years to come. And I think that for that, uh, it is absolutely crucial to find um, better ways to, to restructure private sector sovereign debt. Um, and concretely, I'm a big advocate of a multilateral framework for, for private for debt restructuring. In a bit, we'll talk about a recent example of debt restructuring in your home country of Argentina. But before that, let's uh, consider another issue that frequently arises in legal and philosophical debates over sovereign debt. Much discussion and negotiation, as you note in a 2018 piece in the journal Political Philosophy, uh, focuses on the so-called odious debt doctrine. Can you give listeners a brief introduction to the doctrine and how it's commonly interpreted? Yes, so it, it has a very, very long history. I'm only going to focus on you know, the contemporary interpretation uh, of the doctrine and how it's, it's been used in the political philosophy literature. It's basically characterized by two or consists of two provisos. Uh, the first one is called the regular government proviso and the second one is the public interest proviso. And the first one basically states that debt is only binding to its citizenry if it has been accrued by a regime that is democratic. The second one focuses not so much on the nature of the regime, but on the purpose and use given to the debt. And it states or entails the debt must have been contracted and spent in the public interest in order to be binding to its citizenry. And then there is, um, like with everything in philosophy, a big disagreement and debate on the extent to which both of these conditions or provisos are actually sufficient conditions or whether only one of them is. So I think there's two main camps. Uh, one camp thinks of both of these conditions as sufficient, which, for instance, would entail that if a government is democratic, it doesn't really matter how the money raised through the acquisition of debt is spent for the debt to be binding for its citizenry. And then there's another camp that says, no, only the second, the public interest proviso, is actually um, a sufficient condition, which means that in order for the country's citizenry to have the servicing obligations, it actually does need to have been spent in the interest of the citizenry. What are some of your concerns for uh, how this public interest uh, proviso is interpreted in practice? And, and can you say a bit about what you propose as an alternative? So I think I have two main problems with the way in which the public interest proviso is mostly interpreted. The first, I think, is one that springs from a, a more you know, holistic 
understanding of how the economy works and uh, how state budgets work. So the first problem I have is that money is fungible, which means that it is very, very difficult empirically to actually establish whether uh, money that has been raised by a particular debt contract um, is spent or not in the public interest. So that's one part of my first concern. Then there's obviously also the question of the normative significance. And in my opinion, it doesn't particularly matter if you spent the money accrued by a particular debt contract um, in a specific way, if uh, out of context of how you spend the rest of your uh, state budget. So what I advocate for is to take a kind of holistic view of the state budget and ask the question of how that state budget as a whole is spent rather than only the money raised via the particular debt contract one is, might be interested in. The second problem I have with the public interest proviso is that, well, public interest is a bit of a Pandora box. Nobody really knows what it means. And my fear is that this vague invocation of the public interest might actually occlude that there's fairly little that the state can do that is truly in the public interest as the general interest, and that most of what the state does on a day-to-day basis uh, rather falls in the category of doing things in the particular interests of some things that are minimally in the interests of uh, the citizenry as a whole as kind of general interest, but that actually always create winners and losers. And my firm belief is that, as I said, most of what the state does falls within this category. With this analysis in mind, how should we understand or revise the idea of odious debt? So against that backdrop, what I do then is I revise the second proviso of the odious debt doctrine and that argue that citizens cease to have debt servicing obligations to the extent that the state systematically acts in the particular interests of only a subgroup of its citizenry to the extent that this subgroup is not um, the most disadvantaged group of society. And then in the kind of second part of that paper, I also introduce an, a new sufficient condition to challenge that repayment uh, or the citizen's obligation to service debt that was accrued in their name. Does this failure of debt to serve the public interest give rise to corresponding responsibility to forgive or restructure that debt, either by private creditors or by non-governmental organizations such as the International Monetary Fund, who might step in and facilitate such debt restructuring? I think that when a state is over-indebted, one of the things that happens is that it does no longer have merely a responsibility vis-a-vis its citizens, but also that it has a responsibility towards its creditors. Actually, this is regardless of you know how indebted the state is. Obviously, when you accrue debt, you are in a contractual relationship with your creditors and you have a responsibility to service and that debt in order to, you know, meet that responsibility. What happens when the state is over-indebted is that there might be a trade-off between the responsibilities the state has vis-a-vis its citizens and that that it has towards its predators. Um, in the kind of 
macroeconomic literature, actually, they um, talk about citizens as informal creditors. And what they try to indicate with that is that the state faces this dilemma of whose interest to prioritize. So if you ask me about a duty to restructure, <laughs> uh, I would definitely point at that um, dilemma and say that there are good reasons to restructure debt in order to make sure that you maintain a reasonable balance between meeting both of those responsibilities that you have as a state in a, in a way normatively sound way. And I think I'd like to add another thing um, to, to your question on uh, the responsibility or the possible duty to restructure. And that is that since I've since I wrote the piece um, for JPP, my thinking has evolved um, a little bit. And I'm more and more skeptical of this idea of Pacta Sunt Savanta or the repayment norm, the idea that contracts must always be respected uh, and that that must always be repaid. And the reason is that I've been closer um, in contact with how this actually works in practice. And um, I've come to realize that there is a very important double standard in uh, the kind of extension of credit or the acquisition of debt, which is that at one point in time, namely when the debt is extended or when the um, sovereign state um, I don't know, like emits bonds, the idea that the state might not be able to repay or might not be willing to repay is part of that emission of bonds. So it is priced in via risk premia. At least in that point in time, in say T1, creditors are aware and actually get rewarded for the fact that the state might at some point default or that it might be kind of a riskier investment to make. Whereas in T2, when that risk materializes and the state actually does default, creditors start insisting on, you know, pacta sunt servanda, the duty of the debtor to repay because um, the terms of the contract demand it. Um, and I think that's, uh, in a way, this double standard is um, interesting, but also normatively problematic. And I think that that in a way reinforces the challenge of Pacta Sunt Servanda and might be a promising ground to think further about something such as a responsibility to restructure. That's an important point. The way it plays out in public discourse, uh, in part, I think, because uh, there can be a bit of uh, questionable reasoning, uh, I would say, uh, from the norms that we have for why, say, a friend ought to repay alone we've given them, uh, applying that or importing those reasons to sovereign debt uh, when it doesn't really apply very well. Uh, in part for that, we don't think about the, the ways in which the riskiness of debt is built into the reward structure of offering debt in the first place. That is why, uh, why it's such a potentially lucrative investment opportunity. Uh, and that this reward structure might bring with it a modification of the ethics of the borrower-creditor relationship. This is particularly in cases where the expectations for servicing the debt, this risky debt, uh, include socially and economically destructive austerity measures, things which, in other words, are so contrary to the public interest. 
I completely agree with you. And I think that that's something that is also um, recognized, as you said, in a public discourse. So in the recent Argentine restructuring, uh, it was really a media war. And what you could see is that creditors were trying to present um, Argentina as the responsible borrower who um, borrowed beyond its means and is uncooperative in the restructuring negotiations. And Argentina was uh, trying to, you know, uh, counteract that by emphasizing the importance of um, also taking into account the responsibility they have vis-a-vis their citizenry and not only the legal and formal responsibilities they have uh, vis-a-vis their there's predators. You could see similar sort of, uh, we might think of them as normatively questionable uh, applications of the reasoning, for example, in the in the various debt crises among countries in uh, the euro uh, following the great financial crisis, where the, the structural barriers to some countries getting out of debt and the fact that their indebtedness was not uh, typically the result of uh, profligate spending uh, on behalf of government uh, were sort of not only ignored, but in fact, were straightforwardly misrepresented. Um, you mentioned Argentina, uh, and that is your home country. And I think uh, listeners might even be able to hear uh, an eye is coming to us from Buenos Aires. They may even be able to hear a little bit of the uh, background traffic uh, there uh, during the the podcast. So it adds some flavor uh, to, to the discussion. Uh, they recently had, uh, uh, very recently completed a sovereign debt restructuring and one that uh, I, I, I gather is fairly well received from a number of different quarters. Can, can you talk a bit about that restructuring and, and the process involved? Yes, absolutely. So I think that Argentina and um, restructurings often kind of makes the headlines. And that's partly because we've had a lot of those in our history, uh, but also because um, Argentina tends to push the international standards in this area um, of law as well. So um, what makes this recent Argentine restructuring, I think, quite unique is, well, first, that it was, the restructuring was conducted uh, in the midst of a pandemic, and hence a lot over Zoom, I would assume. Uh, But also the fact that it altered the order of what I think was um, taken to be kind of the uh, policy consensus of how you were supposed to do restructurings. So rather than starting with an IMF program, so rather than first trying to restructure the debt it borrowed from the IMF and then in a way with the IMF program as an umbrella initiate the negotiations with the private sector. What Argentina did is it started with the private sector. I think it was first and foremost out of necessity because um, it had um, debt payments due earlier with private creditors than it had with the IMF. But I also think that it really... um, was a a very important uh, innovation to show the world that it is possible to pull off a successful restructuring without having to do it via uh, 
the IMF. So um, Argentina first started negotiating with private creditors, as I said. They've reached, they, they did reach an agreement, um, and then they started negotiating with the fund. And um, this also gave the fund, the International Monitoring Fund, the opportunity to uh, play a different role in the restructuring with Argentina's private creditors than it usually did. And here I'm talking about um, the fund's debt sustainability analysis, which is uh, was ready after the initial weeks or months of the Argentine negotiation with its private creditors and which I think kind of hit home like a bombshell because basically from what you can follow uh, from the news, the positions between the Argentine government and the private creditors were quite uh, far away from each other. And Argentina had produced its own debt sustainability analysis. Um, but creditors have the ability of challenging the legitimacy of, of that debt sustainability analysis, of course. And then when the fund's debt sustainability analysis came out and said something rather similar or at least closer to the Argentine position than it was to the creditors' um, understanding of Argentina's debt sustainability situation, that really uh, kind of contributed positively and constructively to uh, Argentina's negotiation process. So I think that, that that's very interesting, and it's definitely a new uh, new element that kind of um, came up in the recent Argentine restructuring. And then I think that the second main um, reason why the Argentine restructuring is relevant for the broader policy community and other kind of countries in a similar situation to Argentina's is that uh, it was a test case for uh, the new collective action clauses. So collective action clauses are um, legal clauses that are part of bond contracts and that had a long history. I think we are right now in the fourth generation of these collective action clauses. And what they attempt to do is to try to avoid that... um, some investors litigate against the country after have to kind of demand full repayment after having purchased uh, the bonds at a discount price. Um, and these collective action clauses at the end were not used in the Argentine case, but they, I think, were... Um, it was a very important test case for them because Argentina could at least use the threat of using them uh, in trying to kind of bolster their negotiation position. Can you maybe uh, connect a, a couple of different strands of our discussion then, would you say? And you mentioned this legally and in, in some senses politically innovative restructuring process uh, here, what makes it different and maybe a model in the future. So the normative principles we've been talking about throughout the rest of the podcast is do they give us a re- reason to think that this is not only sort of innovative and new, but a, a major step forward of the ethics of sovereign debt? It was a very... Um successful restructuring case and definitely a case that can that shows how much uh, a country like Argentina can do in order to try to even out some of the asymmetries that exists in the realm of sovereign debt and maybe the international financial architecture more broadly but I think that what needs to be done um, goes way beyond what Argentina could possibly have done uh, in its restructuring and has more to do with a multilateral effort to truly expand the tools available to restructure debt in an efficient um, 
equitable and predictable way. And as I said at the beginning um, of the podcast, I think that the way of doing that is not via, you know, the improvement of collective action clauses, but uh, via a multilateral framework or forum uh, that brings creditors and debtors together in a neutral terrain that provides debtors with the expertise, which is very, very specific. Um, and even people, you know, who've uh, worked in this area uh, for years, I think, um, don't necessarily always know um, everything that there is to be known about it. Um, and that also... Um, is able to do things such as providing a stamp of legitimacy to a neutral debt sustainability analysis that can anchor the negotiations between creditors and debtors. So that, for me, is the way forward. And I think that that's something that, uh, if one thinks about the ethics of sovereign debt, uh, is absolutely crucial to try to level out a little bit the asymmetrical level playing field. Oh, it's a exogenous shock of a massive scale, right? So it doesn't have a lot of the same sources, but there is worry that it'll play out a lot of the same ways, right? That uh, the, it'll, even if countries didn't particularly spend that much, uh, it's having a lot of the similar, as you mentioned, uh, or even more so impact on uh, capital flows out of countries and therefore both the amount of debt and the cost of future debt. Is this reform particularly uh, essential to dealing with the trillions of dollars of debt that have inevitably been incurred uh, as a result of the pandemic? So I think that if there is a time to uh promote and try to implement such a reform, it's definitely now because there's a lot of um, kind of stumbling blocks and obstacles on the side of all players to push for such a reform. So as I um, have written about too, even debtors who might benefit from such a multilateral framework oftentimes are wary of pushing for its implementation because of the implications it might have on their credit rating. So I think that now is a very good political moment to push for a reform that is needed. And as the literature, um, you know, repeats over and over again, again, is in a way the main lacuna of the international financial architecture. That being said, I think that other things need to be done to complement the you know, response to the pandemic, because obviously this multilateral framework um, is not going to be implemented from one day to another. And there's things that need to be done with urgency to try to um, help emerging and developing economies and low-income countries, of course, too, um, as well as the most vulnerable within these countries. Because if there's one truth to the pandemic, is that it is symmetrical shock with asymmetrical consequences. And it is definitely the most vulnerable both within and between countries that um, have suffered the most. What are some concrete things that need to happen right now? If you think about, you know, what this might mean concretely, well, clearly um, one thing that is being pushed for internationally is greater liquidity. So um, special drawing rights, a special like a, a new allocation of special Drawing rights is absolutely crucial. Uh, m- more lending from multilateral development banks and um, from the World Bank and the IMF as well. These are definitely things that need to be done. And then I think also an expansion of the initiatives of the G20 to uh, 
cover a broader scope of countries, not only low-income countries, but also uh, other developing countries. So those are definitely things that I think need to happen in parallel to the establishment of a multilateral uh, framework for debt restructuring. This is really great stuff, and I uh, interesting uh, original analysis and on a very important topic. Thanks again for your insights, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the series. This has been Pandemic Ethics. My thanks to Anai Wiedenbloom, Leverholm Early Career Fellow at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford. Thanks also to my colleague Craig Matarese and the musical collective Algo Underground for the soundtrack to the podcast. For more information on this episode, including uh, complimentary readings and a preview of upcoming episodes, go to pandemic-ethics.com. Until next time, be well and stay safe. Thank <laughs> you.